right, chapter three. The feminine genius. Mystery, veiling, piety, and modesty. The feminine genius again. Yes, the feminine genius. I don't mind it. Yeah, if you've listened to previous episodes, I've asked questions about what this means because I think it's a little I find it a little confusing, but yeah, I know that you I know that you like it. And I'm well, not again, Do I like yeah. it? I use the feminine heart most sure. of the time. That's uh-huh. what I normally say. But but that also can be theologically like in the uh, well, that's really a interesting because I, I would associate like genius with an intellect and you're using the word heart. So right. like brain versus heart. That's funny. It is interesting. And I also would wonder like if I could have coffee with Edith Stein and John Paul II, it would be a question I would ask because I think Edith Stein would say, <laughs> I mean, mean, she she does, I think, I don't know. I, I actually can't remember if she quotes feminine genius, but I know she talks about like the soul of woman. And if you look at St. Thomas, he would disagree with that, right? That we won't get into it, but like the different like soul, like how there couldn't be a different soul. Um, but I would have so many questions about this because there is like a feminine heart in my mind that I agree with Edith Stein that mm. I would have to talk about Thomas about in heaven. Well, and a- also, I don't know what John Paul II means with like the genius being more of the intellect, which also connects to the soul. So there's an interesting <laughs> question later in the chapter that I want to get to, but I won't spoil it for now. That's about this question about like what makes whether or not a lot of the feminine masculine differences that are very obvious Mm -hmm. are a result of sin or not Ooh, but that's later in chapter no i I, okay i'm so Uh excited but like already i'm like no like (laughs) okay but we'll get to it well i think anyway okay but she seems to hint that there are some things that that are i think they're okay so we'll get to it we'll uh get to it okay this is my favorite chapter um, I'm obsessed with it. It's completely underlined from the first time I read it. And now the second time I read it, I, you know, up till this point, I have not done additional notes because I've already marked up this book pretty badly at this point. And with this chapter, I couldn't help myself, but write more thoughts and more notes. So something that like struck me, like on the first page, on page 41 in chapter three is, um, how she talks about how we veil what is sacred and mysterious. And this is part of the feminine genius, right? Or feminine heart, however we want to, to quote that. Um, the A woman's mystery. And I love how she, in this chapter, uses, I particularly noted how she used all these um, Old Testament examples, which I thought was like really, really neat. So she talks about Moses first. Um, but I also noted they're masculine, like they're men mm-hmm. that she used as examples. Did sure. you notice that? I didn't, but yeah, now that, I suppose now that you mention it, it is really interesting. What would you say to, because it seems like when it comes to this particular issue of, well, what about veils or veiling, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to someone who sees something like this and says and sort of misinterprets it or or views part of the church's you know or the tradition both in in israel and in the church even though you know according to canon law and stuff like that veiling isn't required anymore that sort of thing but they see veiling as perpetuating a kind of infantilizing of women or oh it's just you're trying to hide this right the church doesn't like doesn't like women, doesn't like sexuality. And so 
that's the reason it does veiling and all of its other modesty stuff because it's ashamed of this and it's ashamed of that and it doesn't like this and it wants to hide that well i think that von hildebrand actually shows the truth about the matter which is that um we veil what is sacred we veil what is holy and mysterious so it's actually an uplifting of women to actually take on this practice is very um dignified and it's a um it it elevates it and shows externally her role as the bridal woman and also her mystery and the sacredness of women. So I actually think it's the opposite. It's not degrading. It's actually exalting of women. Yeah, I think I think the viewpoint that objects to that is just one that that sees a kernel of truth in something and just hasn't extrapolated it all out because there is something true about saying, oh, you hide things that you don't want to look at or that you're ashamed of sure. or that are gross, right? <laughs> like you use the bathroom in private and you, most people probably don't uh, put their trash can on display. Right, right? They right. sort of hide the trash because it's that sort of thing. And so there is a sense in which, yeah, we, we do hide or put things away that we don't want to look at, sure. But they, we also hide or veil or this kind of thing with things that you shouldn't put on display right? right so there's you you do we do both of those things right you you want to protect things that you don't want to or can't put on display mm-hmm. and things that shouldn't just be open for absolutely anyone to look at so we do kind of both of those things and those that was, and those would seem to be at opposite ends of the spectrum and so i think it seems like a lot of objections are only viewing the one side and not viewing the other sacred side. Right. Right. They're viewing the side of, oh, you're just ashamed of this, or you think it's gross nicky and you don't want to look at it. It's like, yeah, we do that with some things, but there's this whole other opposite end of the spectrum of things that we find to be so important or so special or unique that you do something similar. And so without kind of a keen eye or without all the knowledge, maybe you're mistaking them and sort of combining them in a way that you shouldn't. But that's part of why I think her, what she's getting at here and why a lot of this talk is important. That way you can make those distinctions that this is not that kind of thing. It's right. something special. It's an ordered view of modesty. Can I ask a quick question though? Mm-hmm. So with the veiling thing, you had said, oh, in canonical law, that this is not, uh, like you don't have to do it anymore or something. Mm-hmm. But I always read that it actually was never taken out. Like it never, after Vatican II, like no one ever said, like, you can stop bailing. And that people just sort of did it on their own accord. Yeah, so there's, that is true, right? So it was, it's not something where in the old code, it said, do this. And then in the new one, it says, don't do this. Mm -hmm. In the new one, it just doesn't appear at all. Okay, but I think that's really telling, like, what happened there? You know, I guess we took yeah, our Yeah, I'm own... not sure. I haven't I haven't taken a canon law class. <laughs> it's not something I've studied a lot. I mean, it's, when I it was, was looking... taken out for a reason, right? But nothing. It, there was nothing that replaced it or, or anything like that, right? I just remember when I was looking into veiling, that really struck me because mm-hmm. I was like, this was never like actually taken out of the liturgy. And, and it really convicted me to continue veiling, you know? Sure. I mean, I think that just like, there's probably two things to say. But first is that because the new code took it out, 
right? You're not breaking a church law by not doing it. Right. Under it's not a of, sin. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's part of like why I'm saying that, right? It's not like you're, you're doing something the church says you, you're not doing something church. Says, you need to do this right? because it took it out. Right. And it's not there, but you, you, you would kind of imagine in practice, it's kind of like a soft, I'm not even sure what, what to say. Just the, the, there's, there's a big difference if, if there was some sort of document or, or something that said, don't do this anymore, right? That would be one thing. It was just kind of something that was just sort of silently left on its own and moved on. Does that make sense? Or it's not something that was, that the, the church came out and said, this is bad or don't do this. It just kind of left it there and concerned itself with other things. Right. right? It found other things important to put, put down on paper in writing. Yeah. And it just kind of left it as it is. I just always, yeah, I think, I mean, you already know this because we talked about failing and that's why, you mm -hmm. know, I bail and our children, you know, our girls and everything like we, we find it important, but I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's just intriguing that like it never was addressed. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to say like, okay, this is not a sin and simultaneously to recognize why and look into our traditions and trying to understand like the beautiful tradition behind this because we're we're leaving you know in these mo these modern changes and everything leaving behind a lot of symbolism that is actually like really really helpful um not just in giving god glory and and worshiping him in a reverent way but also in um for us for us as people like these externals are so helpful for us to enter into a transcendent reality and the mystery of what we're witnessing. I wonder if this is just another instance of the difference in mindset between Eastern and Western approaches to popular piety and liturgical practice, where mm -hmm. sometimes in the West, we tend to fall into a mindset of, well, what's the bare minimum that I need to do to make sure I do that? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how we think about things, because we talked, we talk a lot about, well, what makes this, what makes the sacrament valid? Okay, like what's the bar that I have to get over, and then wow. like I'll make sure that I do that. Yeah. Versus a more, at least in anecdotally, you know, it's not something you know black and white, but anecdotally, my experience with Eastern Catholics and Eastern Christians is tends to be less of a, well, what makes this valid, or what's what's you know what what do I need to do, and is much more a question or a mindset of what can I do or what should I do or what's the most that I can do? Yes. Right? They tend to think of like, yes. how far can I go? How far can I take this? What's the most that I can do? Um, and so I wonder if that's, I wonder if that plays into it a little bit. Yeah. Right. Of like, what can I do? What's the most I can do? And then what's the bare minimum and that sort of mentality. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really yeah. wise like way of sort of looking at like yeah because there's something the in the west it. that we're wondering well what's what's the line right what's what's the bare minimum that i have what do i have to do there's right. a, like, kind of a wisdom in that right but there's also a wisdom in the well what's is there something else that i can do what more can i do sort of how extra can i be <laughs> if that makes sense right? yeah so there's different think, ways of approaching it i think the saints are extra and usually so, like that's yeah. what we need to sort of strive to be like we need to look into it we need to see like what is god asking us i need right? to find the patron saint of the bare minimum 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i need to pray for me right like yeah, yeah okay i don't know would that be? <laughs> bare minimum yeah. says the theologian who gave his entire life and career yeah, well, maybe john vianney uh, like couldn't learn latin it's true <laughs> it's true you can pray to him okay so she also goes into this um this is so important this is like okay i'm gonna read it i'm gonna read it it's on page 42 oh um, yeah actually, uh okay. no that's yeah those are really important yeah okay which mm -hmm. part are you basically the part the red and the black okay yeah. so i talk about yeah like my two different notes from different times i've read it um i talk about how um just the woman's body is so sacred to the point where god actually like when when a woman is like when a child is conceived it's not just the body of the child. It's not just procreation from father and mother. It's God touching the woman and literally placing a soul in this flesh to make it a human being. So there's this um, incredible mystery and beauty of like how the woman is touched by God in this moment, like within her womb, the sacredness of her womb to create another human being. And that's something like fathers can't do. So we, and I think like to emphasize this, like we talk about the power of man and, and their leadership and um, the beauty of man so much. Like we see this in, like, I'm immediately thinking of the sculpt, um, the sculpture of David by Michelangelo and like these, uh, like the sort of beauty of man. And this, I think she sh sheds light on the beauty of woman, like within the womb and this ability, this capacity, that's what I'll say, because not everybody has this but the, like has this moment of being able to conceive but like the capacity the the what is the word it's yeah. not yeah capacity to bear life um in this way so i think that's really beautiful but she also then goes into how a woman dresses how she sits how she walks and laughs should always be stamped with a note of holy reserve and um i think a while ago this would have shook me like a few years back like i would have been like why can't i just be like one of the guys like i always liked like when we were in grad school and everything and hanging out with our theolo theology friends like it was all the guys and i would just listen and admire like the conversation of this high intellect of conversation going around and like wanting to be a part of it and i always stayed quiet and like listened but um but I see now like that listening is part of like the holy reserve of woman. And back then, I think like if I had read something like this, I would have been turned off and almost offended. Like, well, why do I have to sit a certain way and like do, you know, do these certain things because of that sort of feminist mentality that like I had taken on within our culture. Sure. Um, and comparison, right? Um, but but how she shows that this is actually like a privilege of women that like our body language our dress the way we present ourselves can truly represent like our hearts our souls our genius as women um in like a fullness of uh communion like of body and soul and this reflection of our heart of this sort of mystery which she talks about like we don't have to display it all we can be mysterious and that is intriguing it's beautiful it's part of femininity yeah i suppose it 
just as more reflection that we saw, I think, in the previous chapter, I guess. Is it chapter one or chapter two? I can't remember. Where she compares how one of the differences between men and women is that men tend to craft and women tend mm-hmm. to embody things, right? So just more of... And I also think it's it's interesting that she doesn't she doesn't try and provide any re- explicit prescriptions this is how you should dress this yes. is how you should sit let me give you 10 rules or something right and she's more just simply posing the question mm-hmm. really she's saying well it's it's not like oh make sure that you sit in this particular way or wear this particular kind of clothing that has a particular length of inseam or whatever and also it is you must laugh in this way right yeah it's more <laughs> of it's just it's she's more just tending to say more more explicitly drawing out this fact that women embody certain things so those are particular things that should be thought about yes or consciously sort of meditated upon yes it's very wise on her part she's planting seeds think about this think about this and she goes a little bit further then because she talks about von lefort which i've read everything she's writing here about von lefort i ended up reading in the eternal woman that's where she's quoting from um it's a very um heady book it's not von lefort is not um like an easy practical read it's very um metaphysical about femininity and but she goes into how clothing like how women are meant to be veiled like that that clothing especially in our modern world is revealing much too much of women like we've never been to this point where we're like we're we're essentially like wearing clothes that you can see like our entire bodies you know and our shape and everything like that and how it's it's monstrous like it's it's a traitor to our mystery and to think about those things because she says here like to to this is von lefort to unveil her the woman means to destroy her mystery and that's really important to consider and then she talks about saint paul urging women to dress modestly so she's really like going into how the externals matter Mm -hmm. you know um but then she sort of switches gears and she talks about how um like this is really different from man so like a woman fulfills her mission through prayer sacrifice and love and how and it's not through exterior accomplishments but I do think like men need to have those exterior accomplishments because that's part of their like providing, protecting like these, these sort of exterior. Maybe we need more validation. <laughs> we need to see it sometimes. There's a sense in which we tend to, I think men tend to judge how successful we are if we can measure it in some way, right? If there's a way to think like to rank something or weigh something or measure something or point something out mm-hmm. which is, again this external mode of judgment this external way of existing as opposed to this more interior way of existing in the woman right i think that that's part of the difference i think it's a really good balance you know like between the two sexes to have that like okay here's exteriorly we're going to like get this done and interiorly mm-hmm. we're going to consider these things yeah. and how it's going to right get done. exactly yeah mm-hmm. and obviously both are happening for both people like both men and women but again there's like different particular emphasis 
and gifts. Um, but she talks about how women are more pious than men. And I, I do <laughs> want to so say funny. this. I, I'm going to let you talk. I'm uh, talking so yeah. much. No, it's good. No, it's good. <laughs> um, but you know, I love this, this chapter. So, right. Yeah. Um, but like with, with this, this is not coming just on her own. Like she, these are just, I think, I think all of her thoughts are not just her own thoughts. Like she's very, very intellectual. Like she's, she's basing her findings like on a lot of reading, but this is something Teresa of Avila points out in the interior castle as well. And St. John of the Cross points this out as well, that women are very receptive and it's easier for women to become more pious. I, I mean, well, it's also just kind of a historical fact, right? Just in any era, just look around and notice what's happening. Really, right? You know what I mean? I yeah. think so. It's it's both. It seems to be both a theoretical and a practical observation. Just there's if where you come at it from both angles. I think that that's, I think that that's really true. Um, Did you have and, something? Well, she just talks about how there's in a lot of this chapter she's she seems to be pitting certain things against one another there's a lot of dichotomies that she brings up there's at least half a dozen different dichotomies she goes through and looks at these different pairs and so here she's talking about this receptivity versus efficiency because mm. men tend to be, want to be efficient with things that's true right like well, how, what, <laughs> what, can, what can i get done how quickly can i get it done mm -hmm. how much can i accomplish right uh and and often when and that's part of why men can be stupid about relationships, especially a relationship with God, right? Because when you're trying to treat another person as efficiently as possible, mm -hmm. you can miss a lot of things or not treat them like a real person, right? Or, or ignore them or think, well, why do we need to talk when everything is running very smoothly? Like what's the big like what's what's the problem? I don't understand, right? Mm -hmm. Where that's that that can be relatively inhuman among human relationships mm -hmm. and so analogously it would seem to also apply to god right like how do i treat my spiritual life as efficiently as possible yeah and that's not it's not a way to cultivate love in the best way if that makes sense yeah you know, so yes yes yeah that's just no it's it is really interesting and there's more that she says elsewhere i think a couple pages later about the difference between men being clever and women being wise yes which is basically just more of the same right where men tend to be well how can i how can i like do how can i kill two birds with one stone right how can i be very clever and accomplish this or get through this etc and but the, the problem is that can very easily go into a kind of a, a, a mode of cunning right well how do i get what I need to get. And it's obviously based, you know, on sin and pride that can, that can go wrong in, in a whole bunch of different ways. Whereas women tend to be more prudent or more wise. And that's an, a, like a legitimate virtue. Whereas you could be clever in all kinds of good or bad ways. You can't be wise in, in a bad way. A good woman. That's what I'll say. Like a good woman. Because yeah, of I don't course. think we have a lot of wise yeah. women. Like, in our times like i think that's something we have to pray for and like seek and really yeah wisdom is not just a given in woman just like cleverness in a man isn't mm -hmm. like you have ignorance and stupidity you know mm -hmm. so <laughs> yeah uh, so she goes into she but then she talks about receptivity and then she goes into talking about old testament men again like samuel 
and everything. And I actually thought this was really funny because to me, she's showing that like men can have this capacity too. And so even when we talk about receptivity as a feminine trait naturally, that like men need to possess this as well, because that's how, that's the sort of bridal nature of like a relationship with God, right? Like this, like it gets kind of like, you know, we could probably do a whole podcast on that of how like union with God, you know, and what that, what that looks like. But like men need to have this capacity to grow in holiness of receiving God, right? So she talks about, again, the Old Old Testament. Okay, on page 44, um, a little bit towards the end, I just had a note about Americanism that she mentioned, that this heresy. Um, can you just talk about that a little bit, about what it is? Sure. Before so, everyone's like, all the Americans are like, what? So, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. um, or like, yeah, America's terrible, right? Everyone seems to be either on one side or the other. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, Americanism... Other was a possible heresy um right it's 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 a little slippery but there was a letter that the pope wrote to the american bishops at the end of the 19th century warning them against this tendency that 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 the pope calls americanism um and he doesn't accuse anyone specifically of this but he says this seems to this like this idea this spirit seems to be alive in america uh, and so let's let's sort of you know cut it down right now, etc. And so, in a nutshell, basically what he says is, America has all these great virtues and all of these great things going for it, but those particular virtues can, when not ordered properly, very quickly turn into vices. And he specifically talks about the temptation to elevate the active virtues over the passive virtues. To such an extent that any receptive virtue or passive virtue would almost seem to be worthless or useless or that we don't need them anymore he talks mm -hmm. about how in this new spirit in the 19th century uh, and you know going into the 20th century there seems to be this new spirit of well the passive virtues and the receptive virtues those were things that we needed before now we need to be really active we need to get out there and we need to do this and we need to do that and we don't really need to be contemplative anymore. We don't need, you know, wisdom and prudence and we don't need to be silent and we don't really need contemplative prayer anymore and that kind of thing. So Americanism is this, and I think she's, she mentions it here because of everything she's has compared so far in the previous pages about receptivity versus efficiency. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's exactly where she's going. This idea that you're elevating activity and efficiency over receptivity would be this kind of americanism right which has been like i said like condemned i think the i think what's what's the letter called i can't remember exactly what it's called off the top of my head but i think it was written in 1896 or 1893 in, in the 1890s at some mm -hmm. point yeah okay that's good the the thing that i connected it to as well with americanism is the um individualism yeah um like rather than looking at like the common good mm -hmm. and so for me i wrote a note on the side because i was connecting this to everything she was talking about about veiling and modesty and i was just thinking about how that applies to right now and how that can be helpful to us as women um with 
this Americanism in mind. And what I put here was like the issue of personal style. So like getting too wrapped up with this personal expression, be it through artwork or um, any sort of anything with the arts and personal expression, including fashion, how when you put a heavy emphasis on I need to express myself or stand, you mean like standing out? And st- yes, like standing out, mm-hmm. being different, like this self-expression to the point of um, almost just like drawing attention, almost like it's just yeah. It seems like what you're flashy. trying to yeah. So are you trying to emphasize this idea that not not that personal style is? I I think you'd probably be the first one to say that personal style is. Personal style is Great important. And good and yes, important yes, and yes. fun, right? But if it goes, if it's if it's done for the sake of standing out, or just purely for the sake of being expressive in itself, mm-hmm. then that's what goes too far. So that's it's not what, what is Americanism. Right. That's what falls under Americanism in my head. So okay. so that's like that was like my note on the side was like fashion, yeah. personal style, expression, individualism like be careful we need to think about the common good as well yeah from what i recall he does he does mention um and this is leo the 13th i'm pretty sure unless i'm getting my leos and my pies is mixed up there's so many of them right at the turn of the century yeah yeah um i think it's leo the 13th and i from what i can recall he does mention individualism right because there's there's something that he admires in the americans that he talks about a very like a kind of brave adventurous spirit mm-hmm. obviously that's sort of what the world knows you know the, the world looks at america and sees you know like the wild west and you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. but he says well that kind of that kind of spirit can be good when directed this way but when it becomes a kind of crass uh individualism over against the community then that's a bad thing which is what you're exactly what yeah you're talking about. yeah it's the same thing with like artwork as well like when it gets like disordered and um and almost chaotic and ugly mm-hmm. as a form of personal expression like we have to ask a question of like yeah no that's that, no i think that's a good way of putting it because that's that does seem to be one of the characteristics of you know maybe what you want to call modern art versus pre-modern pre-modern classical, classical art, something like that classical. yeah sure whatever yeah yeah any kind of thing where lots of classical art you might find that stands out or provokes something in you or shocks you maybe, but it's kind of a, a byproduct mm-hmm. of its desire to show something good or true or beautiful. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the purpose of a piece of art is in itself, just purely to provoke you or shock you, then in my mind, that's not art anymore. Right. Like that's something else. I don't know what you want to call it. Right. But if it's so that that seems to me to be the difference, right? It might shock you on accident because it's something else. That's real art. But if it's if it's just purely created to shock you or provoke you or to evoke something like that in mm-hmm. itself. Then that's I mean, that's probably why I find a lot of it. Ugly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So did I, but um, OK, so. Then we talk about, she goes into chastity and adultery and all of that. Um, And she talks about, you know, having a deep devotion to Our Lady for chastity, like that being extremely helpful. Did you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think 
not specifically. The only thing that came to mind was that, like, I know that various saints and even even contemporary priests or spiritual writers that I've read or have just heard, you know, like different priests talk in, in passing, that kind of thing, that one of the things that they always typically recommend to seminarians and priests themselves is, right, a devotion to Mary will help you live the virtue of celibacy. Mm-hmm in in different ways and so i think that it's a good it's a good point that she pointed out that that's kind of a a universal practice almost right whether you're single or married or mm-hmm. um you know consecrated or you're a priest living out this particular virtue right devotion to mary in a kaleidoscope of ways would seem to help order you in this particular way yes chastity Mm -hmm. do you have any comments on the fact that she talks about how women are more deeply affected by unchaste behavior than men um i mean she talks if if i'm incorrect right she talks about how it's because of the different ways that men and women integrate their entire lives i think is that what she's getting at right so when like we've we've talked about before in different ways obviously um that I can, it's easier for me to bracket off particular emotions Mm -hmm. to just get on with my day, Mm -hmm. right? Than it is for you. And that seems to be not a universal masculine versus feminine, but a a pretty strong tendency, I think, where it's easier for them, for men to bracket off different parts of their life or different emotions Mm -hmm. than it is for women. So do you think she's just mentioning that because, well, women tend to live more holistic lives and so this would tend to affect them more than not or because they're or or for other reasons i mean she she talked elsewhere i don't know if she i don't know if we got into it yet or because i've read ahead i can't i can't quite recall where she talks about how women in particular have a gift for innocence i think that women can have a gift for innocence like i think you know, with all of these things, we're talking about these sort of like the idealistic woman, like the the biblical woman, the woman that is holy, because I think that the opposite is true in so many settings these days, unfortunately, you know, like the lack of innocence, the lack of modesty, like the lack of like all these things, um, just because it's so culturally mm-hmm. accepted. So, but yes, like I think like that's <laughs> ideal ideally true um i do think though i i think what you're saying is exactly right that like yeah like you can bracket things off more easily and like a woman is more moved by her heart and i think that's what and like her emotions and it affects her heart and emotions to have like physical intimacy like more fully than man like it's it encompasses so much of like who she is and um and so, yeah, no, I, I wonder think... if she's talking, oh, she doesn't clarify again, because I, I find a lot in this book, I wish for each paragraph, she'd written like an extra paragraph mm-hmm. for each one to kind of give more details. I do wonder if in this particular context, she's talking about unchaste behavior outside of marriage, like not between like married people. Yeah. Right. Because I, I would imagine that she would have different things to say when she talks about, um, right, a couple who are married and are in love, mm-hmm. right? If there's that kind of wound, it would tend to probably tend to affect them both in a similar 
way, but maybe outside of it, right? If, if a man or a woman is just on their own and they're not attached, right, in themselves, mm -hmm. maybe is this what we're talking about? Or again, in a couple pages, I'm really interested in this discussion about how sin affects how masculinity and femininity are experienced. Yeah. So I also wonder if this would be another instance where she, where this is part of what she's assuming that because of sin, men are affected more in this particular way to make them more callous. Mm. And that would be why yeah. it would affect let's, them less. Let's because definitely... sin's damaged men more, damaged their heart more. And so they're less sensitive, less receptive. Right? Because I would imagine, like, if you, if you imagine the... You know the some of the greatest male saints would seem to be those who are able to embody a real passion and emotion and sensitivity to sin right if you think about john vianney or bernard of clairvaux or john of the cross right all of these mm -hmm. different figures who are seem to be quite in touch with their <laughs> with their emotions in this right. in this particular way it's healed yeah mm -hmm. well i think she's definitely so she's talking about unchaste behavior so it's definitely like outside of marriage or like very disordered something going yeah, yeah. On. so so yeah i think that's exactly right i think we should go right to what you're talking about so okay yeah one thing i think is we're not yet we're not there yet um, yeah but on she's she starts to get this topic on page 55 i think where she talks about male and female putting on christ and oh, so there's kind yeah. of transformation of how you embody your femininity and masculinity because of grace yes i see that so there's a lot in this book that is not where she's not really parse she's not parsing out very explicitly nature and grace in the book right she's not saying well by nature men and women x y and z by grace men and women one two and three she's kind of mixing and matching and so that's why part, um, part of me has a little trouble sometimes figuring out if she means does she mean this because this is just how men and women are or does she mean it be like this is how men and women affected by sin are doing this or how mm. they're emboldened and perfected and elevated by grace so you have to kind of when you're reading through this it seems like you have to sort of have these different categories in your mind and try and really read between the lines sometimes although here and where she gets she is more explicit here and going forward what she's really talking about so it's interesting when she says when a human being is transformed into christ a male saint incarnates all the typical female virtues gentleness empathy compassion in a male structure female saints can manifest courage and holy audacity that usually are to be found only in men so i think here's this really interesting thing where she says when you are living in and by grace mm -hmm. and you've put on christ as saint paul would say mm -hmm. you are able to embody what we might generally consider to be virtues more often found in the opposite sex but it's not because you've you know it's not because you've become a woman or become more feminine but there's a sense in which mm -hmm. because you have a christ you're living all the virtues in a more perfect way and so when it's by grace you're able to live and embody and enact and participate in these these virtues that might not be naturally yours but by grace they're possible right and this those those things are and i think it's things that are very simple like maybe you're just a really impatient person i'm not sure i would 
I mean, would you categorize patience as a masculine or feminine trait or not? It I seems don't think to be. So. so that's what I mean. Yeah. So um, you could be a very impatient person, but by grace, be very patient. Right. Or like she says, there's some that are maybe more specific, like empathy mm. right, that you could live out as a man in a much more perfect way by grace than maybe you couldn't by nature, by your nature wounded by sin, if that makes sense. Right. She does go into like a different topic now though mm -hmm. like from what from what we're talking about yeah. because now she's she's going into like really fertility and birth control and ordered procreation she really notes that like when you use artificial birth control it's it actually like it takes away from our own dignity because it's really what animals do like it's based on like pleasure alone mm -hmm. um and like this sort of like human instinct and pleasure so it's like animalistic almost when you are are taking out like the capacity for this miraculous like the the opportunity the the for this miraculous moment to take place of conception yeah and she she makes in what are what are her words what are what are her she she makes a distinction between procreation and um what what word does she use is it copulation yeah. yeah this is so this book i think is just this is like 2010 i think mm -hmm. um to me this would seem to be right out of like john paul ii does this in theology of the body and elsewhere he i think from what i from what i can remember he distinguishes between procreation and reproduction in the idea and which but it's it's the exact same thing that she's talking about here because human beings have irrational souls we can direct our animal and our, our animal passions in a particular way that animals can't right so animals so essentially what this would mean what we would say animals don't actually procreate animals reproduce yes this term procreation really emphasizes this idea that there's a participation in God's activity that we are ordering our creation to. So procreate, mm -hmm. right? It's and so the when it's done in a rational way, then that's procreation. And so anything that removes or hinders or damages or lessens this aspect of human beings being able to be rational and provident for themselves and make decisions um lessens that dignity exactly like you're saying right because it takes away what's special about human beings mm -hmm. and their activity and the actions that they that they choose right yeah i think it's it's important to recognize here like our limits as human beings like with science like we can have certain things that we can discover and do, but we have to consider whether or not they're ethical and morally. Right, so Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah, uh, Jurassic Park. Well, that's the famous line from Jurassic Park, right? Mm -hmm. Your scientists were so concerned with what they could do something. They didn't ask whether they should, should do something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's part of what I think we were talking about that last week, maybe about the, our, you know the 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 enlightenment desire just to rule over nature mm -hmm. how do we have power over nature well, that's that's progress yeah right and that becomes ethics eventually right right, right. it's by, by right you know it becomes right what you can do becomes what you should do 
well, if you can do that, then Why then, don't then you? you have to do that. You have right. a kind of duty to the human race if, you know, to, to do it if you can. Right. And yeah. And I think this is a slight tangent, but I just think it's so pertinent to our times that we just have to like sit a moment with birth control because, and maybe, maybe we're finishing on this, but um, no, we'll get to the, we have to get through the. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah. But with birth control, it's, you know, because I think so much of the argument is like, oh, but it's like medicine, but it's not because it actually messes with this union where like God is involved and this mystery and miracle can take place. So like, it's something so sacred, that union that like that it's irreverent to touch it. It's, it's a sin. So, okay. You, we had this part where that you wanted to get to. So let's get to that. Sure. She spends more time talking about passivity and receptivity. So yeah. it's something that she's been talking about the whole time. And it's on, it's on page 58. So it's right in the middle. It's the, the, the middle paragraph. She says this, she says that the heart and emotions play a greater role in women than in men is once again, either an expression of a beautiful female charisma or an indication of how original sin has infected a more universal, noble gift meant for men also. The heart is the very center of the person, etc. So I think, again, sometimes she's kind of cryptic, and she, it's, it's dense for me to try and work out what she's actually getting at. But I think that she's saying when, when you look at the role that the heart and the role that emotions play in your life, right in women and men both of these things are at play i think i think that's what she's i think that's what she's really getting at and i wrote like a question mark because i'm just curious about thinking through this more so i think that she's saying both not it's not one or the other i think she's saying that on the one hand foundationally there are these differences right where women are more are more capable by nature by you know not fallen nature just by nature mm-hmm. of accessing their emotions of being present to their heart and at the same time that that is a kind of gift that's meant for all and it seems to be more damaged in men that's the way that i'm reading it but i i don't know i could be wrong so i i don't know what i think about this because so god from the beginning created male and female so Mm -hmm. we see that in genesis okay And then, but also with that, I think the clue here is our bodies also accommodate certain characteristics that we are attributing to our hearts. So with the receptivity of woman, for instance, like she's also in her body receptive sexually. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. like in the body of male, like her male counterpart. So like, there's something that seems truly intrinsic to man and woman that is literally made from the beginning in this way maybe it's so are you saying so so are you saying that it is universal or are you trying to make the point that men and women from the beginning were made particular ways and so it would be more feminine feminine by nature in itself so i i think i would say that men and women were made in these particular ways so by nature it would be more feminine more masculine to be x way and what y way or z way or whatever you um but but that that's kind of the whole point is that then when we have one another we are showing each other different attributes of god 
Yeah. And I think from my, I think that that's true, but I think part of what she's helping me see, and again, I, I suppose my thinking could evolve in this in the future, because it's the first time I think that I've thought about it in this way. Mm-hmm. It seems like this is a bit of a paradox because what you're saying, I think is true. And I think it's what she's been saying as well, right? That feminine, the feminine genius in this way is this particular thing. And yet she mentions, right, this idea that once if you if you're transformed in Christ, if you put on Christ, mm-hmm. then you're able to embody and live out and perfect virtues that might not be yours in that way. And then another thing is she doesn't she doesn't mention it here, but there is that kind of also very difficult to really parse out other statement in Paul where he says, you know, it's there's no longer male nor female, right? No Jew or Gentile. Where he doesn't mean, oh, in heaven, there is everyone's going to be the same. Mm-hmm. But there is something true in that because of Christ, because of grace, there is a kind of transcending of nature. And so grace can help perfect these particular things. And she mentioned, and then the, the other thing that I think sort of goes along with this is what she mentions on the next page, where she talks about the different female saints who were martyrs mm-hmm. right because she right this her, her subsection is frailty thy name is woman where she talks about the weakness of women mm-hmm. and yet there's a sense in which it's almost it's more glorious for women to accomplish certain things because of this and and she mentions it, it made me think of um right perpetua and her her prison diary mm-hmm. where she has this vision where she becomes a man and puts on armor and does battle mm-hmm. because it's a kind of metaphorical expectation and prophecy of her martyrdom that's just a few days away you know i think that's really interesting and i would i think i have to sit with that yeah i think it's it's paradoxical in a particular sense yeah because i think that both things would be true because i think a sin wounds men and women in different ways right and one of them i think would be because we have right think about the, the what she mentions in scripture right how, how many times does scripture mention the heart and god's heart and we have a devotion to the sacred heart, but it's the sacred heart of a man, of right. Jesus, right? Right. Which we would say, okay, well, Christ's heart, Christ is the one that's most all of these virtues. Yeah. But he's a man. Mm-hmm. But so does that mean, okay, well, sorry, you know, now, now these virtues are men's, they're Christ's, sorry, girls, you can't have them anymore. No, of course not. Right. I don't know. There's a sense in which it just seems to me there's there's a bit of a paradox, a bit of a mystery. I'm not sure there's like a way of solving it or picking one over the other. Because I think there are true things on each side that should be maintained and how those are combined. Yeah, I guess I, like for me, like what's going on in my mind is I'm thinking, okay, so what are the virtues that are characteristics? And I'm like, oh, there's so many, you know, like meekness, gentleness, you know, like I'm thinking of femininity right uh-huh. now, you know, gentleness. Well, what does Christ and, say? Yeah, and be meek and humble of heart yeah, yeah right so yeah i just so that's uh, why i think it's a paradox yeah. i think they are feminine yeah but i think by grace you can be given this gift well there's a union that takes place like yeah. this is something uh-huh. like really mysterious actually i think we're hitting on of like christ and the church right and like union with exactly God. so that's why like wow this i did write paul's idea in ephesians that marriage from the beginning even by nature mm-hmm was meant to be a symbol of Christ in the church church. where you have this male, you know, male, female complementarity. 
so you gain this fullness though through it like this right yeah which is where she why she starts on the first page of the book talking about how the kind the kind of the the whole revelation of what it means to be human is found in the bear that's so cool now the flip side of that right where you'd say okay well by grace men can embody these feminine things the flip side of that would seem to be what she mentions on page 62 where she you know she she mentions what what she what she calls the macho complex right any man affected by the macho complex would be well advised to meditate on what happened at gethsemane and golgotha the holy women were at the foot of the cross right in gethsemane all the apostles fled right so i think that this she and she puts it in square scare scare quotes right now scare scarecrows <laughs> scare quotes macho complex and i think what she's talking about is what we in the what in 2023 tend to call toxic masculinity yeah this idea where you live out and fall prey to your worst sort of vices and worst tendencies as masculine right um because i think there's there's a lot of things in the culture there's a lot of things the culture calls toxic masculinity that is just that would be like the good things about being a man because sort of we're afraid of men in a lot of ways that don't make sense mm-hmm. but there is a but there is but and, and so I, I i think that from what i can see like a lot of people talk about toxic masculinity in a way that i don't think makes sense but it doesn't mean i don't think it doesn't mean that i don't think it exists because i think it's exactly what she's talking about with this macho complex this idea that we can um you know men can fall prey to their they're supposed to be courageous but you can be a coward mm-hmm. right where she talks about okay well if you think that you're going to be so great as a man well just look at what happens at the end of the gospels right who are who does christ meet along the way well the women right well who runs away well it's the men right who denies christ well it's peter right who's still there at the end well it's mary and the other marys and and everyone else and so there's both this real activity with the men in the gospels but they also tend right it's the gospels are very are pretty clear on pointing out all of the ways that the apostles were weak and made mistakes as well right it does both of those but also okay like i feel like we're being really hard on men right now well that's okay but like, we're supposed they, to be hard on they men, were right? they <laughs> were you know like the apostles were all men like i mean i well, guess maybe because it's like we talk about men so much that she's she's doing this but i i remember like getting to this point in the chapter and i was like feeling bad for men like <laughs> you know what i mean yes perfect <laughs> um well i think that's but to, i mean i think it may i think it's fair to be more hard on men if the whole idea of we're talking about the differences between men and women right? i think if men are called to be particular ways and they fail mm-hmm. it's okay to it's okay to point that out you know what i mean yeah that's a particular way that that's something that needs to happen and typically just like we talked about before in previous episodes right it makes them the most sense usually for women to police each other and for men to police each other Mm -hmm. right women hold each other to women should right hopefully in charity right hold each other to a particular standard Mm -hmm. and that's what men should do too right men should police one another right hold each other to a particular standard and so if you have men writing the gospels well then <laughs> they're gonna you know point out the good and the bad right right 
No, that's good. I have on page 68 um, about women towards the end of the page about how she just sort of wraps this whole section up about women being called weak and how the wise woman won't be offended by that at all, especially when we look at it in light of the gospel and Christ's teaching on like in, you know, and what St. Paul says, like my weakness is my strength. Um, but how that looks like in the light of Christ. And she makes all these different, um, I guess, points on how weakness is woman's strength and, mm-hmm. and how it, it doesn't have to be what I'm looking for, but it, do, it doesn't have to upset us. It doesn't have to, like, we need to see the value in that statement for what it truly is in a deeper reality. Yeah. Cause right up further up on the page, she, she talks about how all of us are only creatures, right? So in a certain sense, every creature is weak because right. it's a creature because it's completely dependent upon God. And so I think the point she's trying to make is that by women being on average, physically weaker than men, there, that is, at least in the way that she's putting it, that's almost a kind of gift because it makes it more obvious that they need to rely on God. Whereas because, you know, men can be physically stronger, we can get tricked because of our own pride and the thinking, oh, we don't need, I don't need help. Yes. Right. So, and she, she really gets into that, like, especially I have a note, like about intellectual pride and mm-hmm. like how dangerous that is. Sure. Um, I do think it's, I think it's in this chapter. I don't remember where it is. I think it's so funny how she talks, where she basically says, well, only, you know, it's, you know, all the heresies that have ever been invented, it's basically just all men. Yeah, right? it is in this chapter. <laughs> because yeah, they're just yeah. so concerned with what they can think about and what they can come up with intellectually. Yeah. Where she really, I, I think that that's really funny. Something, another note, that's just sort of a side note on this topic that she she wrote that, like, I really appreciated was about the passionate soul um, like being for God. So be either hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. Like, you know what I mean? And I just loved that because I think, um, it's really comfortable to stay in a little lukewarm position. Um, but that we're, we're called to like a certain passion, right. Mm -hmm. For our faith and for Christ. Yeah. Well, she, I can't remember where it is, but she talked, doesn't she say something about how we tend to forgive sin or crimes or whatever it happens to be if they're more of the passionate nature mm, whereas yeah. we tend to where we're much harsher if something is like calculated uh and i think like even in the legal system right there's different you know it's, you're you're probably going to get a lighter sentence if you commit what's called like a crime of passion like i just i, I wasn't thinking right? i just in the moment i acted this way because i was so upset mm-hmm. right it's different than oh i planned this for 18 months and did it because we implicitly understand if you plan something wicked and you're very clear and cold and you've really thought about it and you still do it, that's way worse than just acting in the moment because, you know, you were sort of like blinded by rage or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. And so right, acting hot, acting cold, right, always, always better yes. than being lukewarm. Because that sense you're just, there's a certain, um, you, and I think it's, I think elsewhere she talks about how you can, especially men, can confuse this vice of being lukewarm with being a prudent, right? Oh, just, you know, I don't want to take one side or another. I'm just going to sit on the phone. I'm going to wait and see what happens, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and sometimes that's the right thing to do, right? Because maybe you don't have enough information. But oftentimes, right, we can 
uh, kind of cover our, you know, cowardice or impatience or, or any, or, you know, don't, we don't, we don't want to make a stir because it'll be too much trouble for us. Uh, and just, that's just, you know, that's just being lukewarm, right? Pick a side, pick a side. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about this on, on seven and we're almost done. Um, where she is she quoting yeah she's quoting someone and she says a virtuous woman commands her husband by obeying him yeah which is again another paradox and i'm just curious what your what my thoughts perspective are on is on this yeah because i think i have like a thought or two but I, i'm not sure yeah i wonder if i can put it into concise words so i i underlined this because i just thought it was a really powerful way of showing that in obedience and submission is freedom and how it creates a harmony between husband and wife that is powerful. And so when the woman isn't putting down her husband, isn't fighting with him, isn't, you know, disobeying, isn't, you know, all of these things, that's actually what's going to cause like be part of, I should say, a tension within the marriage. Hmm. Whereas like the virtuous woman who obeys wisely knows that that union that comes from that and the peace that comes from that is going to create a sort of um, like a power in in obedience. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Your thoughts? Yeah, interesting. No, I think... Uh, what I was thinking was somewhere it's, I think five or 10 pages earlier, she compares, again, I was talking about those dichotomies. She's always comparing two things and elsewhere earlier in the chapter, she compares authority and influence. And so that's where she seemed to be going by pulling this quote out. Yeah, 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 exactly. Where, um, and, and she talks about it when, when she's comparing authority and influence, she she's also just saying in sort of universally like she where she mentions okay well there's there's authority where you have sort of the explicit power to command right and then there's influence where and and she and she finishes that like thought that you know that paragraph or whatever essentially by saying usually actually influence is much more long lasting and is more powerful than authority oh that's interesting because it's much more it's not because authority can be explicit it can be more easily rebelled against in certain ways and then you could in it's in in government or the state right your authorities can can change and that kind of thing but when you talk about real influence there's a sense in which you don't need authority to have influence and that's and then when 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 we're comparing it to you know husband and wife for instance right she you know she would go on and say okay well a husband might have authority but a woman has genuine influence. And so I think that's what she's talking about here as well, right? A virtuous woman commands her husband by influencing him by her activity and obedience would seem to be a part of that. And so if we're talking about, right, the woman as the heart of the home, Mm -hmm. she has a real power to influence the home in a way that doesn't depend on any kind of explicit authority to command does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Right away, I'm thinking of like the queen mother of the Old Testament and like her power through influence. Yeah, um, right. Because you can, but by, by your actions, 
you can have, and I think we see that all kinds of things. I mean, think about just political movements, right, of, of mm -hmm. people, right? The power of the laity, even we talk about, you know, the, the sense of the faithful, right? Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which influence, I, I think that she's right, there's influence is really powerful and in some ways more powerful than authority because it can be, it's more easily accepted and it can spread more easily and it's maybe more comforting. I think that's what I would say, that it's more comforting and and it is powerful, but I don't think it's more powerful than authority. Yeah, well, I think maybe in my mind, I'm thinking of just sort of the fallen world in a sense, right? Yeah. Maybe if we're talking about a virtuous man commands by authority, then his authority would always be directed to the common good out of love and in service. And so obviously that would yeah. be sort of the most powerful thing. It's reminding me of like the Proverbs 31 woman and how like important it is to have like a wise wife, because like if the man is the head of the house and like what we see traditionally as an authority, then that influence actually really matters. So if you have a wise wife, because there is a teammate thing going on, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there's not a lack of dignity on the way, you know, like this yeah. is not taking away from, from a woman's place. Uh -huh. um, but like it, how that role, like it's almost how the puzzle piece works in the action of man and woman in as like husband and wife or, or as I'm thinking of, you know, the queen mother and the king. And, and then I'm thinking of our lady also and her influence on Christ, you know, and how like her intercession is so powerful. Yeah. I'm trying to think about in my own life though, it's not very often you'll demand that I do something. Right. I mean, sometimes like you just need to tell me like, do this, like, or <laughs> you forgot to do this. You need to do it. Or like, no, don't like you're stupid. Don't do that. Right. It's, I so, do not say that. No, I know, but I'm just, you know, yeah. but, but I find, but because of who you are to me, I find myself constantly sort of attempting to think about things and make decisions or try and plan or whatever it happens to be with you in mind or the children in mind, just because like your presence in my life is such a big influence. Mm -hmm. Right. So like I, I, I would find it very difficult to make a decision that, I mean, first of all, I'd find it difficult to make like an important decision without like talking to you about it, but even like a little decision typically is okay. Well, should I like, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I bring this home? Should I buy that? Right. It's okay. Well, I mean, like what's Megan going to think? What does Megan need? What do the kids need? Mm -hmm. Like what's, what's that? Right. So, right. You might say, oh, well, wife and children, like they don't have any, it, it, it might even be more obvious with the children, right? The children yeah. don't have any authority over me, right? but they completely influence everything that I'm doing just because of their presence and the fact that I love That's them and so I want true. them. Right. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. the kids, Right. Like it's they think about even something as stupid as like buying groceries. Yeah. Right. The kids have no authority. Like dad, buy this as much as they try when I bring them to the store. Right. They yeah. try, they try yeah, to yeah, have yeah. that. Right. But if you're doing your grocery list, you're thinking about, okay, well, what do they like? What do they need? And so they, yeah, they have, a, they true. have just a complete it's influence true. over what you do just because of who they are. Yeah. And so that's, I think that's part of, I think that's how I'm sort of reading that particular statement. Right. You don't need authority to completely command someone else in their actions, mm -hmm. because if you have influence, then you're going to have there. You're going to have a commanding, you know, pardon the pun, influence on their 
their life, their decisions, what they do, where they go, who they are. Yeah. And so that's part of why we talked before about how, you know, submission and humility and obedience, or these aren't dirty words. These are things that Christ does in his human nature. Um, It's our pride that makes them like we, we uh, detract from them. It's our pride. Because we want to be our own. We want to be autonomous. We want to be a law unto ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So let's finish off the chapter. I see you have one more note here. I had a couple, but I, I'm curious what what was your what were your thoughts here on the last? So I, this is more this is more just kind of like I just find kind of interesting and curious. She talks about how differences in men and women living in community and religious life, and she talks about how like the way that women tend to operate and think is that you know when they're when when a woman when a woman is really aiming at holiness, kind of it's it's almost that Eastern sensibility when you know nothing can be too much, no sacrifice is too great. I'm going to sort of you know I choose all. I'm going to you know pour everything out. Uh, whereas for men, by contrast, tend to be a little more reluctant. And that's why, um, you know, in the beginning, right, you know, men, men needed a rule, mm. right? You know, if, if a man's not going to be ruled by family life, well, then you need a rule. You need the rule of St. Benedict. You need something to command you, right? Because it's, you can tend to think more about this way. And so I thought that that was really interesting. But I also thought it was really, there's a, um, there's a Dominican father, uh, Father Petrie, talks about how his experience of giving retreats at all different kinds of religious communities, both men and women. Uh, he, it's there's there's almost a kind of flip side where he he's found it to be almost universally true where men tend to live together a little more easily mm-hmm. than women do, and so I just wonder if that's due to this more passionate nature, this more fiery sort of feminine if you're aiming at holiness you're going to sort of be much more almost on fire in this way mm. whereas if if her point is true about you know men maybe being a little bit more reluctant and a little more easygoing maybe that you know maybe that makes them you know live with each other a little more easily whereas if you have all of these women in close community all really passionately trying to live for something maybe that creates a little more friction at times i'm not sure obviously i, I don't that... live in community in that way so. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i i uh, imagine that to be true i mean you see the results of that are certainly true it's certainly easier like we can see that for men to live together in community than women i i think that's i think mm-hmm. most people would agree that that is true yeah. So, so maybe this is one of the reasons behind it. I don't know. All I can think of is like reading, like reading about Teresa of Avila and all the different women, you know, female communities and how like there were always just problems because, you know, some of the women wanted to live this way and some of the women wanted to live that way and yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. sort of strict versus lax. And then in comparison to the point she makes earlier about, well, it's the men inventing all of the heresies and maybe it's just because, well, the men just want to kind of get along and sort of, you know, do this, that, and the other. well, what, what do we, you know, let's. You know, what can we do and let's always come up with this new things i don't know it's yeah. I just think it's really funny i think that there's a lot to think about in like really deep serious ways but i also think that it is just you know being honest about who we are as men and women can be kind of amusing right we're funny yeah. we're funny creatures right i think it's a chesterton or lewis who talks about it's it's the christian it's the catholic who like should have the best sense of humor in the world because they know it really does matter. Yeah. And so they know that everything in the world ultimately doesn't matter in as serious a sense. And so we don't have to be as serious about the world. And so, um, you know, we don't need to be as 
dour about life like can have a sense of humor i think that's yeah that's really a gift of the fact that we know that there's more to come and so we can kind of you know have a little bit more levity i think that's exactly right mm-hmm. and it's a perfect way to end the chapter yeah well that was long it was, it was long. over an hour i think that's our longest yet all but right we well. planned on not being being the shortest but oh well well, okay. we, and then we were like, maybe we'll break it up into two. Yeah. Well, nope. <laughs> well, there, listen, Here we go. Listeners might have to break it up into two. Yeah. Or three. Yeah. <laughs> or four. Sorry, guys. <laughs> All right. So next week is, was this chapter three or chapter four? Chapter three. Okay. So chapter four next week. Bye.